0: This episode of the podcast is again brought to you by A Life of Education. A Life of Education is the world's only dedicated health and fitness website, delivering health and fitness content to fitness professionals and fitness enthusiasts from a variety of sections of the health and fitness world. With talks and lectures in areas of nutrition, anatomy and physiology, sports medicine, female development, yoga, Pilates, strength conditioning, uh, the business of fitness and many more to be added in the future, uh, Alo's mission is to bring leading experts from around the world of health and fitness together on one platform to share their knowledge and expertise on a global scale. One of the lectures that they're going to feature when they launch this summer is Mino Fitness. And that's a lecture based on the experiences that a female will go through between the sort of pre-menopause, menopause, and post-menopause, or perimenopause, menopause, and post-menopause. And basically what the details of that are, what they have to go through, the different hormones that are released. It's one that's proved to be very popular. Um, People asking a lot of questions about it. Uh, It's delivered by Catherine Williams and it's aimed at just giving people more knowledge in something that I personally didn't know anything about. Um, And I'm sure there's many trainers and coaches and instructors out there who can watch a course just as easy, just like that, tune in to the website, Buy the course, watch it, learn from it, take that straight out into their everyday practice and, uh, and deliver a better service to their clients. This episode of the podcast is with the guys from Desert Barbell. Desert Barbell is a powerlifting club that was set up a couple of years ago in Dubai and they've uh, really gone for it now in the last 12 months. So, with Patrick and Marco um, and Patrick is an experienced powerlifter from Sweden who competes in the Masters, kind of one of the Masters categories. Um, And they just came in to talk to us a lot about the powerlifting world in Dubai. Um, It gets a little bit technical at the start, but then we shift gears and talk about Patrick's work with the World Anti-Doping Agency and Drugs in Sport. Um, So I'll get on with it again. It's myself and Matt with Patrick and Marco from Desert Barbell. Welcome back again. Uh, it's myself. I'm Matt. We're with uh, Marco and Patrick from Desert Barbell. Say hello, gents. Hey. Hello. So we were introduced to you guys. We knew about you guys for quite a while. We did uh, your talents just before, your first week in Dubai. No, you came to one of our old weightlifting contests. Have I got that wrong? Uh,
1: yeah, I came and, uh, and watched one of the strongman
0: competitions uh, after. It
1: um, was after the qualifying that you had it fast.
0: And then we've known about each other through just sort of the guys well, from Matt and Chris, the weightlifting circuit, I remember you got yeah. when you first moved over. And you're at SHB with, uh, with Ian Houghton. Yeah. Um, do you want to just introduce yourself first of all, kind of where you're from, what your background is, and then welcome to you, Marco, just after that. Uh, yeah, my name is
1: Patrick uh, Headquist from the northern, northern part of Sweden, just by the Arctic Circle um i've been in dubai i moved here in 2015 first time i set foot in dubai was 2013 Uh, so i've been here a few years Uh, my background is i'm a physiotherapist since 2004 uh, i've been lifting as a competitive powerlifter since 2002 Uh, i've done i think i counted to 63 or something competitions within powerlifting uh, mostly regional meets and national competitions in Sweden uh, last few years I've had the opportunity to uh, compete also on the back on the world stage on uh, the world championship last year in Belarus and on uh, the European championships now here just recently a few months ago that was in Sweden also and uh, yeah, the most success as a lifter was at the world championships I claimed a bronze medal in the bench press and same thing at the Europeans, so in the bench press, because you can get separate medals for a squat, bench, and deadlift on right. on a major championship. Yeah, and as for now, I'm um, I'm currently still working with uh, SHP, Scandinavian Health and Performance, which is a uh, physio and uh, PT clinic, um, and we have nutritional coaching also. So I mean, we we try to be as as wide as possible. And now since was it since February me and Marco engaged the start button on Desert Bubble,
2: which is the reason why we're here. Um. Yeah. So Marco, what yes. about you? Where, where are you from? Um, so uh come from South Africa, uh, Italian Italian heritage, hence the name. Um, I mean, my, my background is predominantly uh, corporate. Uh, moved by about five years ago. Uh, I've been working corporate. Um, in terms of the sporting background... Uh, Funnily enough, and I don't even think Patrick knows this about me, but uh, uh, I am actually a certified spinning instructor. <laughs> Excellent. Nice.
3: Just to supplement of the powerlifting. Yeah, exactly. There's nothing just wrong to... with that.
2: <laughs> I, ha- I
1: have my uh, luggage also. I've h- hosted uh, different kind of cycling classes also in primary care. So. <laughs> we are all to do it. Now. Exactly. Um, I've got a step aerobics
0: qualification. Yeah. It's a long time out of date. I don't th- have anything like that. I feel left out. 2005 or 6 I'd, I'd
1: I'm going to triumph you all. I'm an aqua. Oh, instructor. <laughs> and nice. I've had aqua aerobics for, I think, I <laughs> hold uh, I was in charge of that for six or seven years within primary care. I so said. please continue, Mark. Yeah,
0: so, so for, for those people listening, we'll, we'll get a photo up online, but anybody who doesn't know what Patrick looks like, we're sitting across from a Viking <laughs> <laughs> who's got a qualification in aqua aerobics uh,
2: <laughs> class. Excellent. So, yeah, and um, I mean, just, just in, in terms of the, the sporting background, uh, I've always, uh, I mean, growing up, my, my two biggest sports growing up were actually swimming and cricket, um, swam very, very competitively in, in, in South Africa, um, and then just entered the corporate world, and for a while, just sort of general gym training, um, and about two years ago, uh, discovered this wonderful sport of powerlifting, um, and... Uh, just with one of my colleagues at work. Um, he's now a good friend. We, we started training together using a couple of online programs. And about 14 months ago, uh, I jumped on board with Patrick uh, as coach. And that's kind of where our, our story really started. Um, we, uh, in fact, it was after a trip to Sweden that I'd been with Patrick uh, and seen just some of the people um, that he trained back home, the, the ethos of the club where he came from. Um, and that really got me sold on on powerlifting as a sport, um, something that's a bit more, uh, as a, compared to weightlifting, has a bit more longevity. Um, so just
0: explain the difference between the two for people lift, uh, listening.
2: So powerlifting, uh, very simple. You compete in three main disciplines, the squat, the bench, and the deadlift. Uh, so if you were to compete in a competition, you would get three attempts on each lift, and your total across each three lifts is what counts towards the winning Um What Patrick mentioned earlier you do get at your international competitions you get uh, medals for uh, the individual lifts um, and then also you have internationally bench only meets uh, so if you just prefer to bench press you can do that Um, weightlifting is what you see at the Olympics where you just compete in the the snatch and the clean and jerk, Um, similar philosophy with your attempts and your total weight uh, at the end of it Uh, so those are the fundamental differences between the two two sports
3: sweet so what was the the whole philosophy behind desert barber why did you what was the whole gist of that
1: um yeah we kind of when i um first of all when i came here in 2015 um there was not many lifters around or quite frankly wasn't anyone at all around within the expats that uh that uh, i knew of at least um starting working here I kind of discovered a few, and there was no really powerlifting community around. So what happens was that when I moved from uh, Fitness HQ, which I met you the first yeah, time actually yeah. in the shower, <laughs> was it <laughs> yeah. in the locker room? Yeah, uh, and I mean we we had uh, you run into a, a problem when you were in your powerlifter uh, at some point, especially training in a crossfit box. You run out, I run out of room on the bar, and that's not because I'm I'm uh, I'm not claiming to be. Uh, uh, any, any stronger than any other competitor lifter. It's just that you can't. It's a, it's a trouble getting more than 220 on the bar with the bumper weights. So I had a discussion with uh, the the manager and the owner of, of HQ and explained the problem. Um, but at the end of the day, uh, what happened was that across the street at the Warehouse Gym, uh, they invested in in the um, in the powerlifting equipment that I needed, the bars and the slim plates. So I ended up moving there. Uh, I love fitness HQ the bits, so I will hopefully return there sometime, or I go there every other every other day. Um, so you um, had
0: fifty kilo plates, was it? Is that uh,
1: with you? no we have twenty fives or twenties, but they're a lot slimmer. Okay, yeah, the, like a CrossFit bumper is probably like. Eight nine centimeters wide, whereas the same weight on a powerlifting bar is like eighteen millimeters or something. Yeah,
3: you can extend the barbells out as well, though, right? You get like some extra large ones.
1: Yeah, uh, no, but that not in the not in the IPF. The IPF has the conventional size bars, right? Uh, and if you have the slim plates, you have room enough for more than six hundred kgs. So fair enough. six hundred kg Yeah, yeah, it's um, it's enough. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, and uh, yeah. So fast forward, I start training. Um, training at Warehouse and uh, getting in contact with uh, Marco and a few of the other guys in his close proximity. Uh, and we kind of like formed, it uh, was actually Marco or, or I think Tarek maybe. Tariq uh, one of our friends, he formed uh, kind of the chat group, just on a WhatsApp group, uh, Desert Barbell. Uh, kind of like we thought it was like kind of a cool name and we uh, we just kept it at that. Yeah. So then I organized a trip to go to Sweden uh, to compete in a real powerlifting competition. For was it five or six of the guys? Uh, and as Marco just mentioned, when we were there uh, and I showed Marco how an athlete club looks in Sweden because we have a few hundreds of athletes club back home. Um, every, I would say, almost every every small or medium-sized town has an athlete club, most of them at least, and, and the major cities have more, uh, which that athlete club is uh, kind of a mix of um, like the weightlifting and powerlifting that weightlifting and powerlifting club, and we have to remember that powerlifting has been in Sweden as a competitive sport since uh, the beginning of the 70s, and weightlifting even before that. So we have a quite a big heritage of just treating weight and powerlifting as conventional sports, which in other parts of the world maybe isn't really that way. Uh, and here we see the same thing um, that it, from the beginning it's not really perceived as a sport it's just some sort of hobby you have in the gym but back home it's really a sport and uh what was what was um uh, the thing i wanted to show also and, and manage to show to mark and the guys is that first of all it is a sport as i said when we have a community there people can train together people all the lifters have some sort of program structure and it's also uh the fact that people can get ridiculously strong without even looking strong mm-hmm. so um for instance, one of my favorite people back home is, is a mathematical professor that we have in our club. He doesn't look strong at all. I, I, quite frankly, he, he looked kind of weak. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, but he pulls like a two, 230, two, 25, 230 deadlift like, with ease. Yeah. Uh, and all the weights up to 200 looks like a warm up. And he looks like if you, if you look in a dictionary for mathematical professor and slash geek, you will find a picture of him. Right. Yeah. You do not find a p- you won't find a picture of someone who pulling 230 from the floor like nothing. And he's also playing violin in the orchestra. Uh so it's like he's so much not a gym goer. Yeah. But he's a terrific powerlifter. Which I think is the the whole thing that we're trying to portray here also that people don't have to look like w like 170 kg big uh, big guys. To lift weights, you can look at everyone else. I mean, we have uh, in our community we have 50-ish kilogram girls deadlifting 150, 160. Uh, We have like normal-looking guys squatting 225, 230, uh, and like huge deadlifters. Because especially deadlift, you don't have to be huge at all to pull a good deadlift. The best deadlifts you you usually see in the 74 to 93 category—they're insanely strong because you're limited by the grip. Uh, so you can't really pull more than just close to maybe 400 but then it's like you can't pull anymore because of the grip going to go so um, so that's how kind of like the Desert Barbell the foundation of Desert barble was actually a chat group right. and kind of the incentive of having
2: a community around something yeah and uh, we actually um, where the movement really kicked off uh, in October 2016 Um we came together and we said, you know what? Let's organise a powerlifting competition uh, out of Wayhouse Gym. Um, and they had the bars, the powerlifting bars, the the Aleko powerlifting bars. They had, the, like Pat- Patrick said, they had the powerlifting plates. Um, we uh, we commandeered a, a competition rack. Uh, it's a, spe- a, spe- a specific squat and bench rack that's used for powerlifting. Um, and we organised. Oh, actually no, with the first competition we did. We used a standard a standard squat. Yeah, we just carried one of their power axes. Yeah. Um, and we just put it on the group um, and we said, we're going to organize a competition. And we had 12 people enter that competition, uh, all men. Um, and Patrick and I firmly believe, you know, never, don't despise small beginnings. You know, people's perception of powerlifting is, like Patrick said, a big guy lifting big weights. And not everyone wants to look like that. Not everyone thinks that's achievable. And all of a sudden, you had 12. Relatively normal-looking guys, some very strong guys, but some very normal-looking guys getting up and competing, uh, and that really started to change people's perceptions. Uh, we got a lot of requests after that, and people said, "Hey, can we? Uh, when you're organising the next one, can we participate? How do we do this?" Um, and that's when we, we realised it's just it's a it's an education issue. Um, so six months later, we organised the second Power Meet uh, again in Warehouse Gym. Um, we had around 18 people compete in that one. Uh, and then six months later we did the, uh, the third power meet um, and that meet we actually had about 24, 25 people and that was the first time that we actually saw um, a good response from females so women actually starting to pick up the sport so we had around four or five uh, women compete in, yeah. in the third and, well, and then we also
1: had uh, people um, our, our fellow brothers from uh, Kuwait starting coming in so uh, we had at that meet two or three people from Kuwait come in and they I remember they broadcasted the whole thing on uh, Instagram live or whatever it was and you can just see on their feed they're just hammering in comments of every lift they did uh, they're a, a joyful pack of guys if yeah. put it out there's really a huge
3: scene growing that even yeah. with like the bodybuilding and everything Yeah, like and bodybuilding
1: has off, been so. huge in, in Kuwait for quite some time with the oxygen gym and, and all the exposure they get through um, through um, different kind of bodybuilding um, like prominent people going there on yeah, yeah. training at at, uh, at Oxygen the powerlifting scene is I will say quite completely different uh, but at least they now have uh, their own barber club Kuwait Barber Club KBC um, which also are hosting
2: meets uh, in the region so yeah
1: but Marco can continue but uh.
2: so yeah and then uh, last uh, this last April now um, we host the, the we had the fourth power meet um, and you know something that, if you remember, started as a as a community effort just to say, hey, you know, you're all training. There's no competitions. Let's organise a competition for you. Um, Twelve people. And the, the the last meet we did, um, we partnered up with a group called uh, AppLift. Uh, we we pushed a bit more on uh, on the social media marketing. We had around 60 people register for the competition. Uh, on the day, and Patrick and I were praying because uh, we only had one day to do the meet, and yeah. uh, 60 people is a bit yeah. too much to yeah, get through in one day. That's, that's um, so we had uh, we had 40 people actually um, uh, turn up on the day, uh, 11 women, uh, which for us we we put down as a as a big success because it's it's showing that people are starting to understand what the sport is about. Yeah. Um, we had a guy; the, the guy who actually won the competition was a guy called Khalifa of uh, Oman, a very promising young lifter. Um, what was, his, what was his lift? What was his score? Can you remember?
1: He did uh, 210 squats. Uh, and this is a guy weighing 74. Right. Yeah. So he did 210 squats. I can't remember the bench. 120. 125. Five something. Yeah. And then deadlift, he was, yeah, I think he did two 220 f- or something like that. No, it was big. It, he had a big deadlift. He was 240 he, or 245. Yeah, he tried for a super good deadlift because... Uh, he, he wanted to go somewhere in between, but he, he got a little bit confused by the rules. <laughs> so I know his coach was mad at me only for a few seconds, but I think he had a good deadlift. He has a good deadlift, so 230, maybe something like that. Yeah. And
3: what's, what's like the, the range of scores you get? So like, what's the, the lowest? Because I think one of the biggest barriers to people competing in these sorts of things is like we're not strong enough I think enough
2: I compete. think the, the most important thing is that, is that once people stop focusing, a lot of the questions we get is, oh, how do we win? And it shouldn't be about that, yeah. right? Everyone is on their own individual strength journey. Yeah. I mean, we get some people, some girls come, uh, some, even some guys, and uh, they're benching maybe 20, 30, 40 kilograms. Sure. Yeah. Um, and we try and talk to people and tell people it's not about coming in and winning. All right? It's about coming in and setting a benchmark, setting a standard for yourself that you're going to progress and beat the next time you compete. Yeah. Yeah. Uh,
1: I, I, I usually say that uh, when people ask that, what's the, what's the lowest weight? Yeah, the lowest weight you can do in bench is 20 kilograms. That was the bar weight. Sure. Um, because the difference here between, a, uh, like, the conventional fitness scene or any kind of physique-oriented uh, competition is that you don't really want to be a beginner. You don't really want st- to stand on the stage in front of 250 people if you're pale and fat, right? Yeah. Uh, you will look either insane or like in some way, like as kind of a, a joke or something. But in the lifting scene, there's no problem at all. I mean, I see this every time back home in our competitions. Where maybe we have. 60, 70 people on a competition. And in my region, we have the benefit of having world-class lifters. So sometimes you see a world-class result. You can, can see close to a world record. But you also see people that's squatting 75 kgs. Yeah. So we have the range from maybe even in the same weight category. You we can have a squat on 75, you can have one on 275. Mm. And people are as supportive to the 75 as to the 275 uh, kilograms because we're adults, so we talk kilograms. Uh, not pounds, <laughs> uh, and uh, I mean that, that's the whole benefit of it. Um, and when it comes to this whole discussion of oh, I'm not going to compete until I win, hey man, then you have to wait like a long freaking yeah. time because the results is like it's as the results as on a wider base has been really propelled the last five six years since the entry of what we call classic powerlifting because I think now is a good time to kind of introduce there's two ways of doing powerlifting. There's one equipped and one unequipped. The equipped is with what people might recognize from seeing somewhere with a squat suit, knee wraps, bench press shirt is usually the one that people remember most. And it's in a deadlift suit. Yeah. That's equipped slash conventional powerlifting. What has started like the last 10, 15 years is what we call classic lift. And that's only with knee sleeves and belt. So that is kind of the way that the normal gym goer can relate to the sport. Uh, So an interesting story about that is 2010, uh, my club and the club closest to us organized the first national meet hole within the International Powerlifting Federation in this classic lifting. Uh, Before then, from the 70s in Sweden, it had been conventional lifting. 2010, we had the first uh, national championship. An example there in my weight category, which was 100 kgs at the time, the winner, he won at 685 kilograms. And people thought like, "Oh shit, man, he's strong." It's like, "Oh, it's it's incredibly strong." Now, the qualifications for coming into the Swedish Championship is seven hundred and ten. Jesus. So if I uh, like, for instance, if I do, I'm I'm doing now, um, I've done seven hundred and ten, and I will and I will say that uh, if you compare my best results, I will probably do a good day seven hundred and sure. twenty something twenty twenty five, uh, which at the time would have been like. 40 kg is more than the winner. I'll be like, who the f- is this guy? Mm-hmm. I won't even. I'm. I'm not even top ten on the Swedish ranking as for senior lifters. Yeah, yeah. As a masters lifter, I ranked second. But as a open lifter, I will. I'm not on the top ten. Sure. And that was the winner, just 2010. Yeah, so that goes for list. that goes for everything. And I think that that uh, the listeners probably know about a few of the, especially the female lifters out there were really popular. And the, the level of uh, quality on the female lifting has gone through the roof and up over and across another roof. And on top of that, another roof. Because they're so, they're so strong, it's absolutely incredible. I just yesterday I saw one of the 84 kg lifters from the US. Uh, she squatted 225 or 227. Wow. Jesus. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah, it is crazy. Uh-huh. Yeah. But uh, that's, that's also show what happens when a sport's uh, going from being obscure, corner you have uh, a couple of hundred people doing it, and now you have tens of thousands of doing it. What
0: do you think has made that big difference?
1: Uh, it's two things it's spelled CrossFit and Instagram. Right. Because it's not this, this sport back home in Sweden, we have uh, the national championship broadcast on state television and that people might think, oh that that's that's a big thing yeah it is is a super big thing but that doesn't attract people every single day instagram and crossfit yeah 100% that's what those those are the two biggest uh things that we can thank or whatever because you have in crossfit you have a huge amount of people coming in learning that you can do uh, barbell work and not be super huge you can do all kinds of uh, crazy weights with a barbell, without looking like a massive bodybuilder, uh, and uh, and also the benefit that you have a lot of girls coming in, and you look at the the CrossFit scene, the most popular profiles are girls. Mm-hmm. So then they have other girls looking at these girls, thinking, "Oh shit, man, I'm gonna lift weights." Mm-hmm. But then when you come to CrossFit, they're very s- CrossFit is a very high skill thing, right? Mm-hmm. As in, it's, you have to be high-skilled at 50 different things. You need to be able to walk on hands, swim, run, weightlifting, whatever kind, and double-unders and whatever. Uh, so you will have a lot of people entering that and feel like, I have so much capacity more than this, I can't really get it out because I can't freaking stand on my hands. But they go, there, yeah, you know, you can stand still and lift also because I see you have a super good lifting capacity. Okay, yeah.
2: can you? So you can go to that also. I think a couple of things, so the... the what we call the birth of classic powerlifting, what Patrick was saying, making the sport more relatable to yeah. what would be a regular gym goer. Um, all of a sudden you don't need all this fancy equipment that's quite complex to understand and maybe difficult to use. Yeah. You're just talking about throwing on some knee sleeves and a, and, a, and a powerlifting belt, which the only difference between a powerlifting belt and a weightlifting belt is the thickness. Um, so what's
0: the, what's the difference in the thickness?
2: So the powerlifting uh, belt would be uh, a bit, it, it within the IPF regulations, but it would tend to be a bit a bit wider around the waist. Uh, the whole point is just to, just give you a bit more mid back uh, support in the heavier lifts yeah. uh, in the, in the deadlift and the, and the squat. Uh,
1: just for an example, if we it's more relatable, you can if if I take myself for an example, my best squat that I've done on a competition, uh, or the best squat I've ever done, uh, honestly, when it comes to classic lifting, is 250 kgs, which is pretty good. It's pretty good. Uh, the best squat I've ever done uh, with suits and wraps, that's not on a meet, but that's on a train. It's 320. Jeez. So if, if, uh, if a person want to look, okay, I'm, I'm soon going to compete. Maybe I'll, I'll come and watch one Patrick lift and whatever. And he sees me doing 320 and he's doing like 220. It's like thinking, oh, shit, man, I'm way behind. But on the flip side, it's actually fairly close. Yeah. So, uh, and that, co- that goes even more with the bench. I'm a fairly decent bencher. In the gym, I've done a touch and go on 200, which I rank as one of the my best performances ever. With a bench press shirt, in the training session, I've done more than 270, 277 actually.
0: And a touch and go is bar down to your chest yeah. and then back so, up. Yeah. On competition, I've done uh,
1: 187. But that's not remotely close to what I've done with shirt. On the last nationals, I competed with shirt, was which. Was now one hundred years ago. Uh, I did two forty.
0: So, so why would anybody wear a shirt? Like, why wouldn't you just do it natural? Why, as in, yeah, because
1: the sport from the seventies up to two thousand ten, that was with
0: shirts. That was just the nature of it. That's just yeah. where people yeah. competed with. Yeah, yeah.
1: There was uh, there wasn't anything else. Mm-hmm. And that that was. But the thing was, back in two thousand and seven, eight people starting to uh, like ask for it because up until then people didn't ask for it. So I mean, still to this day, the most prestigious competition there is is the World Games, which is the uh, is within the Olympic movement, but it's it's every fourth year, but like clicks the other two years. Yeah, so, yeah. So the World Games, that's conventional powerlifting, and that's the most prestigious thing you can win in powerlifting, and that is with suit, wraps, and bench press shirts. So that's how it's been since the 70s, and that's how it's probably going to be a few more years. But we see now that with the rise of the classic lifting and the popularity it gains on social media and we have the world championship coming up here in a few weeks in, uh, in Calgary in Canada and they're estimating more than a thousand lifters on that competition Jesus. so it's, it's, uh, it's rapidly growing outgrowing
2: what the conventional powerlifting ever had and just to uh, build on what Patrick was saying the, so you have, you have this classic powerlifting which has emerged a couple of years ago I mean it's, it's, as a sport it's still quite young um, but what that did is it found, it found a, a, a middle ground between I enjoy the strength element of CrossFit, yeah. but I don't enjoy the technical aspect. What can I do? I can't, you know, I'm not just going to drop back to bodybuilding. Um, and what we call conventional or equip lifting is maybe a bit too extreme. Or you have people who do bodybuilding and think, well, actually, I'm, I'm quite strong. Where do I progress to next? if I don't want to pursue bodybuilding but maybe I want to pursue the strength elements and that's that's where classic powerlifting really finds its fit so you see um, and even if you if you follow a lot of the top um, powerlifters from the US for example you'll see a lot of them come from a natural bodybuilding background and now all of a sudden they are elite powerlifters Uh, just bring that strength foundation with them uh, and concentrate on the three lifts Um, and likewise you see a lot of crossfitters moving and saying well um, you know, talk about weightlifting. Um, weightlifting as a professional weightlifting athlete, you have a ceiling. There's only so long you can do that sport. The technical elements of it take the strain on the body, on the back, on the shoulders. So the fallback is powerlifting. Yeah. The other thing that classic powerlifting does, then, it's the ease of entry into the sport. I picked up powerlifting when I was 28, and I, as of as of January. Um, you know, I went from, the, from when I first first started lifting um, and I was talking to Patrick about this the other day um, to get a baseline. We just, you know, went in and said, okay, well, let's figure out what my max squat is, my max be- bench press, my max deadlift. Um, and I could barely squat 120 kilograms. Uh, I could bench um, 100 uh, and I could deadlift uh, just, just, just 160, 170 fast forward 18 months um we did a 220 squat in training we did a 155 bench press and a 260 deadlift nice man Um, and that's just down it's just training and and it's not anything special that i'm doing it's just principles that have been around for a long time and you even see it you go to world championships and you see guys that are 50 60 plus getting onto the stage you see people so you see you see a full range of of age groups yeah it's Uh, funny you say
3: that there's a video I watched this morning it was this uh, 80 year old who's they've had to create a new weight uh, age category just for her but she started lifting when she was 74 yeah and now she's there shit she she was like benching like 50
1: kilos uh, (laughs) over 80 you'll be an M5 lifter so you have Masters 1 which I am it's between 40 and 50 and then you have M2 50 to 60 and then M3 60 to 70 and you have 70 to 80 M4 usually stops there and then you have then probably then 80 to 90 will be an M5 and uh, exactly as Marco said the uh, the level of lifting you see from especially people in the early 40s uh, early and late 40s is some of them are the best lifters in the world. for instance, the two of the girls that are um, like are the best lifters in the 50-52 category, they're over forty. Yeah, I have uh, one of the guys back home in my class, one of five class. He's forty six years old. He pulled a three forty. Yeah, he pulled a three uh, three thirty five deadlift uh, on the last uh, um, Europeans. But he pulled three forty on a on a regular competition just yeah. before that, and he's forty six years old.
3: Yeah, I always remember an article uh, that Stuart McGill published where he was saying that he had one client. He mm-hmm. was, uh, I think, he was a Masters powerlifter as well. But he just competed in the deadlift, and he was saying he's he's got
1: the best like lower back he's ever seen of like a sixty mm-hmm. year old. You know. Yeah, that's also interesting. Now, when you <laughs> when you say deadlift, we have also. Um, Because we talked before here, we talked about the research about the muscle fiber and the muscle, uh, how the muscles looks uh, on on lifters. But we also do um, a lot of uh, research on deadlift training for rehabbing of um, of spinal injuries or spinal um, like lower back pain. And that's also a very good friend of mine who has done his master thesis on that, and he created now I think four or five articles out on PubMed uh, that have been. been uh, produced in uh, different kind of really high-established uh, literature about deadlifts as goes to rehabbing a back. Yeah, so sure. I mean the the uh, amount of research that now coming up around arm uh, let's call them arm movements, it's a totally different scene than only a few years ago. And as as Stuart McGill says, I think a lot of the listeners also know about him, and like us as trainers and me as a physio, I knew about Stuart McGill for like pretty much 15 years yeah but just the last few years he come across to the mainstream scene uh, as one of the probably the best um, the best um, he called the back fit expert like he's yeah, sure. uh, he's, a, he's a really pro when it comes to that and he's highly highly respe- respected from pretty much everyone um, and I mean, he re- he really highlights the benefit of doing training like doing strength training there's no better way to treat um, a lower back pain than training yeah that's how i got into deadlifting when i first got in
3: the gym i have like minor scoliosis and stuff with back pain all the time until i started putting on some serious weight on the bar
0: and going for like five sort of six reps and things yeah yeah, for sure so how does your training look then for one of these competitions like you, you used the example of yourself marco when you went from 110 120 kilo bench you jumped at 40 kilos in 18 months now, how do you? What, how would you structure, say, a beginner's?
1: Uh, it's a little bit different for a beginner, intermediate, or or like an elite lifter. Um, a beginner, if a beginner is a person who, um, how, how do you define a beginner? It's not really the weight on the bar. The, what defines a beginner is how much can you, how much can you increase the weights from one cycle to another cycle of maybe six to twelve weeks. So, I mean, until just recently ago, I would consider Marco like kind of like as a beginner because he had those beginner gains kind of because he just started to do it so and even though he's 28 and still lifting fairly heavy weights when he was passing 170 180 kg as a as a pb he was still the beginner but a, a person uh, weighing maybe 20 kgs less and doing 170 after 11 years of training yeah. he wasn't a beginner anymore but so there's a difference there but um i can just if i can um, for myself, I take my, my my training. I train five times a week, and um, in periods I trained uh, six times a week. But I usually have one or two days of uh, lifting. That is, so now I have two days of lifting. Um, squats uh, at least three times a week. Bench press uh, usually three times a week. Um, I'm now currently on a program that has me benching five times a week. Uh, which is uh, it's a challenge in that way that the weights are not as high. Yeah, uh, yeah because you can't... They say um, people usually know about the old Bulgarian system and that they maxed out every day. That's a completely different thing, so don't confuse apple and oranges here. Um, and then I deadlift uh, two times a week. The most important thing is that you have to vary the intensity, as in both the intensity as in the weight on the bar... And also, how much you push yourself in every single workout. Let's for say, for instance, then take the a regular squat um, program. If I squat three or four times a week, I can't go like full on crazy four times a week and expect me to recover from that. That's not possible. Uh, so you need to have a little bit of fine tuning and a little bit of finger spitzgefühl, and uh, or shitloads of um, like uh, knowledge on how to program or have done it like a, quite a few years to kind of like know where to put it. So you're moving with different kind of qualities on not every every other session, but at least two of the sessions will be completely different. Maybe you work more on technique, maybe you work more on like acceleration, maybe you work more, more on position, right? So you can... Uh, but uh, as of a regular training regime, I will say that squatting at least two, three times a week, benching at least three times a week, and um, deadlifting two or three times a week. And why do you put the emphasis
3: over the squat rather than the deadlift uh, yeah, thing?
1: That, that mostly because they're very much alike. Uh, the only thing is... Uh, because if you look at a squat from the side and you take a snapshot in the bottom position and then you take exactly the same snapshot of a deadlift in the bottom position, they do almost the same. Sure. The, the only difference is that we said, you have the bar in front of you and holding in your hands. So... Um, that's why i think that they transfer to each other quite a lot mm. uh, and i just prefer doing squats more than deadlift because deadlift tends to fatigue the grip quite a lot right uh, and you also have a little bit more um, emphasis on the upper back flexing forward so usually uh, what seemed to work best for most coaches and lifters is deadlifting two maybe three times a week but very seldom more Whereas in the squat, you have a lot of people having great success with squatting, maybe up to six, sometimes seven times a week. It's just a matter of, of using, the, using the load in a, in a sufficient way because it doesn't seem to tire you that much. Yeah. Uh, but you can for sure, if you, you can split it also and doing three and three. But I think the main thing we need to realize is that if you squat two or three times a week, you deadlift two or three times a week, you have quite a lot of work on the lower body. Um, so we have to kind of like have almost the same amount of work with the chest and triceps and shoulders for the bench press. So it's a, don't get confused and only bench like one or two times a week if you squat three or four times a week because then you get like totally uneven uh, in terms of the workloads. So um, I would say at least three times a week. But once again, you have to also control the, the fatigue level and how, um, how much you actually can produce like power on the bar i would never go three or four times a week with benching and going to fail yeah i'm pretty much i would say i can count on my hand at least the two hands that i've ever went to fail in bench press since i started lifting in 1991 yeah
3: and that's a common misconception, right? Everybody yeah. in the gym, like, if they're not dying every session. No. Like, what have I done?
1: No, no. It's, it's, uh, you have to relate to other sports. As in, I always say, like, when you talk about powerlifting as a sport, and how the hell can you squat four or five times a week sometimes? Yeah, but you know, if you're a, if you're a cyclist, how many times a week do you cycle? Yeah. Yeah, but like, like yeah, every day, yeah, of course. If you're a pole vaulter, how often do you pole vault? Yeah, but it's like, it's not, yeah, it's the same. If you want to be good at a movement, you need to freaking do it. Yeah. If you don't do it, how the hell are you supposed to be good at it? So you need... To, that, I mean, the order of, of of the principles of strength up in the top, in the top of the tip of the pyramid, is always specificity. Yeah. You have to be specified. So, um, that, I mean, you have a certain amount of transfer, of course, if you do dumbbell work, if you do any other things. I have a very practical example of, of uh, how I... Uh, I always knew about it, of course, but when I was uh, when I was young, back in 1997, eight something like that, um, I had a little project going on, so I'm thinking, I'm going to cut a little bit. Um, I usually, at some point, cut like seven or eight kilograms of body weight. So I'm thinking, not to get myself stressed, because bench was my primary goal back then also. So not to get stressed during this cut, I'm going to only do heavy dumbbell work, so I don't get stressed about losing weight on the bar. Yeah it worked fairly okay. I, I got to use the heaviest dumbbell they got on the gym. I just pushed a five, six reps on that, mo- like a few sessions every week. Went back to bench and after 12 weeks, I sucked big time. Mm. I didn't, I, I think I did three reps on, at the time. 120 was my usually kind of like, if I can do 10 reps on this weight, I'm, I'm fairly okay. And I did like two or three. was like, <laughs> never Shit. ever again am I going to do this. Yeah. So it's very specific. Uh, and as I said, of course you have transfer. We see that, for instance, in in CrossFit is a good uh, example. The good, the be- best CrossFitters are strong. They are very strong in in, in let's call it all movements also. But they can be a lot stronger if they uh, if they do them more regularly. If you bench every fourth week in a random. Uh, throw down or some sort of wood you're never going to be strong we use fairly strong but you're not going to be at your strongest Well, that makes sense I'm not a good crossfitter because I never do it yeah mm. so Sweet. and that was more or less the same
3: for your program as well in that 18 months where you've seen those big gains was it the squatting yeah. three times a
2: week deadlifting I twice? mean it it took me um, I, I, I followed a, f- a couple of online programs before um, but nothing that required squatting more than three times a week. Uh, even then, it was a bit challenging to get used to. That idea of, you know, you you, you would go into a gym and squats is leg day, right? So you would go in and, and, and destroy your legs, and you wouldn't be able to do anything on your legs for another week or another three or four or five days. Uh, so the concept of doing squats more than once a week was difficult to get my head around but it's like Patrick said it's just managing those loads I mean now we're doing um uh we're squatting four times a week we're benching uh three times a week uh, we're, we're deadlifting twice a week and it's it's just about managing those loads and those volumes sure. um, and it's it's i always advise people um just from my own personal experience and um, people say how, how do we get into powerlifting um you know what 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 do you recommend for an online program and you have a couple of options of very good coaches and i would always recommend people who want to take up the sport who, who who are interested in doing it um or you know, even if, even if it's not just to compete, if it's just I want to be stronger, get a coach, get the right advice, get the right advice in programming. Once you understand the foundations, it's a lot easier to go and find a program online um, that will actually suit you. Um, we did it, I did it the other way around. I found a program that I thought was uh, was was great. Um, ran it the first time, saw incredible gains, and as you do, because you're starting from zero. So when you yeah. start from zero, you do see big jumps and so I thought yeah great I'll run this program again and I'll see a similar type of thing Uh, and I didn't I just got very injured and very 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 fatigued (laughs) yeah at which point I said I'll I'll come over to Patrick (laughs) and he just redid the entire programming and now we don't see that I mean you get to a point where your increases at the end of every programming block or cycle the increments are a lot smaller sure Um, but you're doing them a lot more sustainably I know when I first started lifting and I would finish a program an online program come in hit a PR big squat you know 150 160 170 kilos and think that's great but 100 percent i would not be able to walk into the gym the next week and do the same weight yeah um what we do now is when we finish a block i'm very confident with the weight that i've hit at the end of that block i will be able to walk into the gym the following week and do that exact same weight again and and that's i think fundamentally why i always say get a coach get someone who knows what what they're talking about with the right credentials the right background with competition experience um, and doesn't have to be a one-to-one physical coach. You can get a lot of very good online coaches. Um, they're available. But get someone to review your form, have a look, uh, and put together some, some s- sustainable programming. Don't expect – always expect to make big jumps. Don't look for the big jumps. Focus on building the technique. And that, for me, was, was the biggest and thing.
1: And I think that was also one of the things that have erupted quite largely now after the – the um, the uh, classic lifting kind of like stepped in and almost taken over the scene. Because now you have a, like a wide variety of of coaches that actually make a living on this. Um, and some of them are really, really high end. We didn't see that 10, 15 years ago. It was a few... Uh, well-known coaches, but none of them was available online. Or those who was was like on a crappy website. You need to yeah. hack into or something like that.
3: There's a lot of exclusivity to some as well. Like it's yeah. that kind of old West barb like Westside yeah. barbell stuff, where it's like you don't come in here unless you're really fucking strong. Yeah. You know, there's almost so, like a mm. you've got to earn your right to kind of get into some of these. Yeah. Uh, coaches. And, I mean, and I mean
1: now, uh, just if we just relate to a few of the people that we're we're having our close proximity. Uh, two of the best lifters and coaches who ever stepped on this earth is uh, Bryce Lewis and Mike Toucheur, uh, which also supplies people with uh, online programming. Mm. Uh, and I mean, now, when, for instance, Mike Toucheur has grown, he, he's quite big in this area, he has a whole team of people, his staff, that actually helps him to coach people. But from the start up until just recently, it was him, it was Mike Toucheur, the... the the author of uh, reactive training tips and actually coached you, yeah. coached you, and didn't cost a fortune. It Doesn't cost a fortune still. Um, and then you have Bryce Lewis also with his um, his company called uh, the Strength Athletes (TSA). Uh, also a super good, humble guy who uh, has enormous skills when it comes to programming. He's available for everyone, yeah. and it doesn't cost a fortune. Um, it's not like I mean every other sport you're walking. If you play hockey, I'm, I'm from a, I'm from the north of course, so we have a lot of hockey a hockey equipment costs shitloads. you have a new pair of skates costs like 2000 dirhams Um, and you have to as a junior player you have to new skates every year and then that's only the skates then you have all other things so it's a very simple and cheap sport and then you have uh, as Marco said you have a lot of online programs that are actually for free Uh, one of them that pops into my head is um, Johnny Candido Uh, He has a lot of free content on his page. Really, really uh, good guy, a uh, good uh, lifter and a good coach. And he does pretty much, not all of it, but a lot of things online is for free. The guys at Juggernaut
3: Training Systems, they'd have quite a robust online training. Yeah, uh, Juggernaut. Online competitions.
1: Yeah, JHS also have a a lot of uh, things. And they have a lot of uh, really good content on their YouTube channel. I know the whole principle of strength training that whole book is summarized in eight or nine chapters by chad wesley on his youtube channels like and i don't really appreciate reading to be honest i read thousands of thousands of pages of scientific things in in uh, university and i suck at it <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, and uh no but watching on you know, youtube and hearing me explain it's extremely good and you have so much good content on youtube and on the flip side you have so much nutcases on YouTube, it's yeah, crazy. Like you have to sort it, like you have to, like, this guy is a lunatic, or oh, this guy is, you can rely on this guy. So, but I mean, um, if you have that spectrum, you have Mike share Bryce Lewis, uh, Juggernaut Training System, and Johnny Candido, which are ho- high profile people, you will find so much value in what they do. And you won't really have to search further mm-hmm. than that. Uh, In our, we collaborate, uh, as a bar, we collaborate with Alexander Eriksson, which is, I would rate him as the best powerlifting coach we have in Sweden since the dawn of time. Uh, He's also a young lifter, he has been winning the European Championship as a junior six six years in a row. Uh, And he's an extremely good coach and also provides the service of online training, right? It doesn't cost a fortune at all. And uh, he's also, I mean, extremely high-end and once again, 10 years ago, we didn't have that. He's, uh, Alexander
2: Eriksson, is, he's 23 years old. Uh, he's got six uh, European or world uh, championship medals as an athlete. Very, very accomplished. But as a coach, he's got... And now w- more w- than was was 60 medals. Man. Yeah, as a coach at 23, he's got sixty over 60 medals at uh, Europeans or world championship yeah. level. And that is
1: still now when the competition is actually growing and growing and growing. He's just harvesting medals like he's picking fruit <laughs> what do you
0: th- what do you think it is about scandinavian populations that makes them so much strong and dedicated to the pursuit of strength i had we had Ian houghton on the podcast maybe nine months ago mm. i spoke to him about it but what's your take on it
1: uh, first of all we have to also flip the coin because it's um, the general perception is that russians are the strongest peoples alive like northern europeans are strongest people alive yeah okay maybe so But if you look at the actual facts, as in who has the world records and who has the most medals, it's in the US. So it's actually not really true. But however, that being said, we have a big kind of legacy of uh, wanting to pursue strength. So if we just, I'm not telling you that we're bad or anything, we're good at it. And it's because we take the sports seriously already from the start. As I mentioned, we have had powerlifting as a sport in Sweden since like the, uh, the early 70s. I would say, because Marco mentioned here that a lot of the lifters from the U.S., especially coming out of a like natural bodybuilding or some sort of physique competition, back home, um, the bodybuilding scene and the physique scene isn't that big as mm-hmm. it is in the U.S. It's, it's radically growing, especially on the female side now. But especially uh, if I look upon all the lifters that I've trained throughout the years and the lifters that actually have become world class in Sweden. Its wrestlers it's especially like uh, girls that have deal with horses. It's not they not they don't come out of the fitness community at all. They come from the sports community which in my book is a completely different one. Because if I put it this way, if I get a bodybuilder that I need and I want that I um, sign up to train, it's kind of like you need to deprogram them for a while mm-hmm. so they actually understand that you're not going to supposed to feel the bench press in your, in your chest. It's a movement. You don't expect um, a long jumper running to the pit and trying to flex his quads when he jump, right? It's yeah. a motion. It's a skill. So that goes for every other athlete also. If you have a wrestler or a gymnast or a, even better, like a downhill skier, those legs are real. They don't go around in the downhill skiing like in 140 kilometers an hour and thinking about flexing their quads. They die like that yeah so they, it's about a skill same thing in squat if you take one of those people and put them on a squat rack they understand they're going to go up and down as fast and as powerful as they can they don't give a shit if they flex the quads or whatever so i think that uh, the benefit that we have in the Nordic Nordic countries that we take it seriously uh, as a sport as a skill from the beginning but that, that being said like i think it's a little bit of a contradiction why this why this comes forth now is because of, I think, one thing is that that's the Icelandic girls and Norwegian girls in CrossFit. Right? Yeah. they all over the place. The David's daughter uh, girls. The daughters. Some the daughters. And if you take them away, take all the Icelandic CrossFitters away, it's like you have a few Norwegians, we have a few good Swedes, but then all of a sudden it's, no, it's dominated by the US mostly anyway, if you take away the Icelandic. So I think it's the generation of Icelandic CrossFitters, it's like, it's, of course, they're super good. Uh, and I mean, success. Equals more success. Yeah. Get more success. I think it was kind of a lucky fluke. I don't even remember who was the first one. But
0: uh, and you've done a bit of work with the anti-doping agencies.
1: Yeah, in Sweden. How did you degree. get
0: into that? Uh,
1: and it was fairly, fairly simple because um, you know, powerlifting as a sport has a kind of like a shady reputation, uh, for all the right reasons. I mean, back in the 80s and 90s when they started doing testing for different kind of pets in powerlifting. You got people getting called left to right. I mean, because uh, if you look at the seventies and the beginning of the eighties and the mid-eighties, everyone, pretty much—not you can say—but pretty much ninety percent of all people used it because it they, they wasn't even illegal, right? So it was as uh, as usual as we have creatine now or any kind of protein powder. As usual was like uh, some sort of uh, pads. But to be a big federation in Sweden and to be. Uh, entitled to have those kind of uh, the governmental means and whatever you need to show that you have you need to do something about it so in the in the early 90s in the midnight we had one of our uh, the head of the national team then was a guy named kore lungren and he just did a full rampage on all the steroid users in the swedish uh, powerlifting federation and it wasn't really uh, appreciated fight from the start a lot of people appreciate it but not everyone uh, but that his legacy kind of carried out we need to kind of like sweep before our own door we can't do shit about whatever other country do yeah. we, we can't do we can't say anything about the Russians. Uh, Russians Ukrainians uh, Kazakhstans uh, we, 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 we don't know and we, we can't do that what we can do is we can sweep in front of our own door so in 2000 and can you remember when it was 7 or 8 or something I got elected to be in the Swedish anti-doping uh, committee within the federation and uh, work both locally and we had a few uh, central meetings also but the the main focus there is like it educates on a club level and this is once again the benefit of having 300 athlete clubs Then the regular people in sweden that lifts on the world say they don't they don't train at gyms they train at athlete clubs surrounded by lifters surrounded by coaches surrounded by other lifters right mm-hmm. So if you have that kind of um, mentality from the start that we want to have it as a clean sport for this, I mean, there's one of the aspects, the medical aspect is one. And you can talk to people who use steroids like for hours and you will never come to the same term. It's impossible. You might show research that is dangerous and this and that and whatever. And they will always have example that it's like I've been doing it for 20 years. I'm perfectly fine. So just drop that road. So the only road we can really push on is the ethical road, right? It's unethical. Mm-hmm. It's fucking cheating, right? And people can say, like, uh, "It's a tested sport is not the same thing as a doping-free sport. Hell yeah, of course it isn't. It's the same thing in every sport. But it's just the fact that it's tested and it's cheating. So just
0: explain the difference there with what you just said.
1: Yeah, if, I mean, you can never say that a sport is doping-free, yeah. You can say that it's tested. That's not the same thing It is is doping-free. You will always, I mean, human nature is about cheating, right? Gain advantages to the, the, the fellow competitor that you have. So if you have a powerlifting federation or powerlifting club that do not test, of course, people are going to use it. Because it's, what's the most powerful thing to do is releasing testosterone or having testosterone inserted in yourself. Fine, go nuts if you want to. But if you run the risk of getting caught... Then you at least have to either be very systematic in how you do it, or you just don't do it. Okay, so that's the ethical road, uh, and that's why I mean, we see we see doping bans in all sports: track and field, cycling, uh, running, swimming, whatever mm-hmm. you name it. There's there, right? But it's still, you have to kind of it's 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 like the, the speeding science, right? If you don't have any speed, just free speed all over. People will speed as fucking hell, and they will drive each other like we'll kill people everywhere yeah we have speed cameras we have speed traps we have like uh, different kind of uh, police uh, going around monitoring the speed that's what you do that's what that what doping testing is mm-hmm. it's keeping the limits down right and in sweden for instance we had uh, one of our top end lifters got caught and he's the only high-end lifter we had has been caught and sadly he's been caught again right. <laughs> uh, last year that's the only thing. And then people say, oh, but you shit anyway. No, no way. Because we have, and this is also different between the countries, but all our lifters that is, and I'm t- talking only about Sweden now, all our lifters that are in the top level of the national team reports to WADA every single day where they are mm-hmm. 365 days a year and you can argue of course that you you can have uh, one one comment that i have from a guy that i talked with a, a few months ago he said but yeah but you have you have medical teams and everything and i'll say are you insane do you know how much money it is in in uh, in uh, no there's none we don't have a single athlete ever affording a medical team are you crazy it's not like cycling whatever yeah. you have a whole staff of people like you have have bags or whatever uh, kind of uh, things you 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 flush in the system regardless if they're if they're um, allowed or not no it doesn't exist in powerlifting i would say gladly it doesn't exist yet because yeah. there's one thing that could change all that is that if we get into olympic games which is why I'm a little bit split if I actually want us to be in the Olympic Games or not. Because
2: as soon as it becomes an Olympic sport, it, comes, it generates a lot more cash. Yeah. So just to um, <clears throat> explain what Patrick was saying there, the, the International Powerlifting Federation has, have been on a, on a very big drive uh, the last few years to reduce the instance of doping in the sport to be able to be considered for the Olympic calendar. Right. Uh, and they're getting very, very close to that now. So the, I think the instance has to be less than, I think, 5%. Yeah, um, and at the moment, uh, powerlifting is around six or seven yeah. percent. Um, so they're very, very close to that threshold. Yeah. Cleaning, basically, just cleaning up the sport. Does doping happen? Of course, it happens in every sport. Yeah. But like Patrick is saying, if you put, uh, if you put the checks and controls in place, yeah, people will have a choice of doing either trying to get very scientific and advanced about it, or just not do it at all. And this is you know where, where classic powerlifting sits on this cusp of if it does get considered an Olympic sport, what what does that mean for the sport? Um,
1: I, mean, I mean, I'm mean, i pretty sure you've seen Icarus, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I mean, uh, probably all the listeners, or many of them have seen it also. And it kind of gives you the idea, like, if you think that it's... Uh, I mean, there would be a, Let's put it this way. <laughs> I think there's only one possible circumstance and you can get away with what they did there. And that is if you do something... In uh, like in some sort of like in this case in Russia when you have like the state very much involved, yeah. I think quite frankly now since this came up, I don't think they're going to do it again. I think I don't think it's really possible. Uh, and I know, for instance, in in the states, the uh, USAPL, they really, 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 really go after their lifters to um, to to uh, keep. Keep them clean with with tests and stuff, and the the thing in u s also they have different federations so they have a couple of other federations that actually don't do testing so if a lifter have the urge or willingness to want to have any sort of pets, you can compete for them yeah just fine, and they don't run in, in the risk of having any tests done so but well, once again, I mean just to state that drug tested is not drug free that's that's an that's totally impossible, but we have to out of ethical reasons, do all we can, right? And, and as you know, here also, because you've been around in Dubai for a few years, mm-hmm. you know the, the amount of, of uh, steroid use among the, like the regular gym goers is fairly high. It's yeah. like it's quite scary. And the contradiction for them becomes, like if you can have a, let's put it this way, you can have a, a, a juiced up guy not particularly strong. Yeah. But on the flip side of that, you can have a clean guy being super strong. So being on steroids doesn't automatically make you stronger. It's still a skill. So you, yeah. can, you, can, you need to master the movement. Yeah. So it's, it's more about that. That's, that's why a clean athlete, like a, a non-doped athlete, can beat a doped athlete if the clean athlete is better technical yeah. and trained more sufficient. So yeah, that, I tell I think people that's all the uh, time
0: that like, steroids will get you one thing, but all they allow you to do is recover quicker to then train the next time again it's train harder so if you don't have the mentality to work your ass off then you're not going to get the same improvements but what would you say to people just as a just personally away from the fact that you want to get into the olympics with the sport what would you say to people who would say like why not let them cheat if they just want to do it like why not let people go to these competitions where they don't test and just see how far the human body can go with all the stuff turn into anabolic gorilla shaped animal like humans just from your own perspective.
1: No, I mean, I, if you asked me five years ago, I would be sitting here with a rant and uh, having fire out of my mouth for <laughs> 45 minutes. But uh, I come to the point that I, I can't. If they want to do it, please do so, but don't come around like trying to measure yourself against me or the people that I yeah, train. Yeah, sure. Uh, and another thing that is very logical, if you if you flip it that way, if you say, "Well, let all steroids free in all sports because it's not it's not going to be." It's not going to be manageable anyway. Okay, it's very simple if you're... if I'm not a parent, but if you have a parent in front of you, okay, good. When are you going to let your son get injections then? Is it when you're 12 or they're 11? Where does that border go? Because somewhere you need to start injecting, right? So if you let every sport free of anabolics, you need to... Because you're always going to have that guy on the block that... Oh, my, his dad is giving his steroids when he's 8 years old. Dad, can I have steroids? I'm 7 years old now. I see, yeah. So it's not... You can't fucking do that. Yeah. It's not possible it has to be as the tax system if you want to cheat on your tax please go ahead but you face the possibility of getting caught right yeah same thing with steroids and pets please go ahead do steroids if you want to but you're running the risk of getting caught and being officially hanged out and looked at as a cheater okay that works well with parents at least Like when so when is your son going to start doping them it's like yeah because are we going to have a, all of a sudden an age limit? So under the age of 18, you're not going to be able to... Okay, don't you think people are going to cheat? Will that start when they're 16? Of course. Yeah. So it, it's not possible. We have to... There's only one way we can go. And that is we're going to ban the hell out of it. It cannot be used on competitions. It cannot be used in the Olympics. It cannot be used in that. People are going to do it anyway. But if we have the incentive that no one can do it because if they get caught, they get fucking fired. That has to be the way unfortunately in lifting it it, it's you have that slip hole that you can kind of like compete in federations that do not test so it's a little bit split sword here to what i previously just said because that gives people the advantage or the people the mindset that they can correlate and see, okay this group of guys are clearly on steroids because they're never tested these guys claim to be tested but they're, all, they should, they're almost as strong and nowadays all of a sudden they're stronger Right. so these guys if you ask these guys over here they will have only one answer they're on steroids too okay? yeah. but if you take a step back analyze how do these guys train how yeah. do these guys train it's fairly clear only with we with, with, with only look at social media you see and this is a claim I probably have to eat up later but <laughs> this group of lifters here don't train as good as this one yeah that's I would they don't have the same technique. I would follow the same yeah. mindset on that as well. Yeah. They do not... Because you have to look at it. how does other sports do. You research the hell out of it. You have like different kinds of... You do screening programs. You do a movement analysis. You do like your... Your nutrition is like monetized like crazy. You try to have every single piece of the puzzle in. So let's say you have 98 pieces in a puzzle... Why did I say that? Say hundred uh, Hundred, and the the uh, the athletes here trying to get like ninety five percent right or whatever, like cover all ends of the spectra. These guys over here, they rely too much on the steroids. So they maybe get like only eighty three pieces right. Yeah. That's not enough, because the piece of steroids is big, but it's not. Yeah. It's not. You, they cannot fill any any all the gaps. And then occasionally, of course, you have people also training right. And then when you see, that's when you see like the really really high. But then you also have to realize that not every person has talent for a sport. So you have that aspect also. I mean, I've been training for uh, since 91-ish, and uh, you can pretty much argue that I'm not the strongest guy in the world. You can have people training five years stronger than me on the same program. Yeah. So I think that like there's talent. There's talent for reception reception of of steroids and so I mean, But it, it's the same thing as in everything else. And I hate. I really hate the explanation, but yeah, we have to even out the, the the genetics. Well, screw that. Like, you can't say that. What's that argument? Yeah, but I mean, you have to... Uh, like, not everyone has as good genetics as everyone else, so you kind of even that out with testosterone or whatever. Like, you maybe have more testosterone than me, like, gifted by nature. Why can't I take external? Yeah. So we're kind of, like, on the same level. But that's a stupid argument. If you're, if you're better at me in chess... Should I be using my can I use my Android phone
2: when I play you then?
0: Yeah.
1: Like that's stupid,
2: right? Yeah. But I think just from my perspective, the it's a personal choice. If you want to use it, use it. But I, I look at it and I think if you want to be more sustainable long term, you know, you, you often see and maybe I'll eat this, as Patrick said, I'll eat this later. But it's really impressive when you see a lot of these guys who are knowingly uh on 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 some sort of performance enhancement drugs you it's really impressive to see them lift the weights that they do sometimes but you also see them more frequently getting injured Mm -hmm. and where's where's the longevity in that where's the sustainability as a person you want to do something but you 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 might want to do something afterwards or you might want to do something for a longer period of time yeah um and i think for me that's kind of where the where i draw the line is if your body wants to recover in a certain way, let it recover in a certain way don 't force it to recover in another way that 's when you, you do become a lot more injury prone and like Patrick said you rely on you do rely on, on the peds and you you put a lot of trust in that and instead of trust in building specificity uh, or building a basic foundation for your training if If I were to choose you know and, and I, actually i can I can I can I can attest to what patrick 's saying so we we went uh, as a group of us. Uh, we went to Singapore uh, last year to compete, um, and the uh, the federation that we competed under was not IPF, uh, and it was not a, a tested federation. And we rocked up there with, you know, four four natural athletes. And not saying everyone there was doping, mm. but certainly a majority of the guys that were competing were. And um, and at the time I competed at the and and. So they had the under hundred, uh, well the hundred kg category, and that's where I competed. And I thought oh, I was going to get smoked. <laughs> I thought no, these guys are going to be way stronger than I am. Um, and I ended up out of eight or nine people in the field. I ended up placing fourth, and that was my first proper competitive competition. It made me realise: well, actually, you don't need to. You don't need to take pads if you want to be strong. Just, just not necessary. Um, I mean the other guys uh, one of the other guys that came with us competed in the 82 and a halves uh, and he finished second in his weight category so what you choose and how you choose to treat your body and if you think about things more long-term, well, it's nice to get a tattoo of your of your girlfriend now. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Not so much when you're
2: 80. How are you going to feel about it in 10 or 15 years' time? Yeah, uh, that so was some, interesting. We, back was in out. November,
3: we had the pleasure of talking to uh, Eddie Hall, and that was one of the things he was saying, because like, he had just come off the back of winning his World Strongest Man. He's like, "Nah, I'm done. Like, I can't. I'm going to be dead in 10 years if I keep sort of doing all this. Uh, yeah, it's interesting. So, so how often are you training? What's what's the schedule for Desert Barbell? What's the uh you're there down at Warehouse yeah. how many times a week?
1: Um, but myself, I'm at Warehouse uh, five times a week. Um, and uh, as far as the Desert ball the community, uh, usually, I mean, because we all work, right? So it's spread out. I have the benefit of, of uh, planning my schedule in that way that I have a few clients in the morning, then I go train, then I have lunch, and then I go back to work. Uh, a lot of guys train on the afternoon uh, or uh, some train extremely, extremely early. We um, all get together and have at it. Uh, usually on on Fridays or Saturdays. Yeah. yeah. And actually, uh, this is the the thing. When we started, we were more prone to actually keeping on that Friday, Fridays, Friday session. Uh, now we are even more people, uh, but we have clicks of of. Uh, I mean, for instance, on usually on on Tuesdays when I train, um, a group of the girls that I train, like we all of a sudden like six, seven girls and me training. Uh, then on Fridays it can be I'm always a little bit early because I'm an adult I wake up <laughs> no, <laughs> because I, I go to work really really early on Fridays and then I, I come and train and uh, the younger guys seem to want to sleep a little bit longer so I always kind of like cash and when I go away go from there so but usually on um, Fridays and Saturdays we're there from like 9.30 to one ish or something
0: yeah. do you have any competitions coming up
1: uh, yeah, we have the the power meet. The fifth one is going to be on in twenty first of uh, September, um, and uh, we haven't announced where it's going to be yet. Uh, most likely, it's, it's probably going to be at warehouse again. But it's kind of like out of our hands. In, um, it could be we could be merging with something a little bit sure. bigger. So Sure. But uh, that's the one. And then uh, we're going to also. Uh, I mean, the powerlifting is only one aspect of the of the competitive lifts, um, of the competitive lifting sports. So, uh, we're going to try to uh, go into the weightlifting. Um, cool. S- we have a, a good weightlifting coach coming in. We can't really maybe burst it out who it is sure. and when it's going to start. We're going to try sure. to do a few, uh, weightlifting seminars and hopefully some sort of throw down
2: with the weightlift movements involved. Cool. Just, um, uh, just to kind of go back to, you asked a question earlier about the story of, of desert babal Um, so when we set up Desert Barbell, the, we set it up to say, well, what we actually want to do is we want to make the sport more accessible. We want to raise the quality, the standard of the sport in the region. Um, we want to make the equipment available to people. So our, our whole philosophy is for what you buy it for in the U.S., you buy it for the same price. here. We're not going to make it unaffordable. We want it to be accessible. We want people to have access to the best stuff. We want to give people access to that content. To the, to the people, to the community. So let's bring those world-class lifters here. Let's get that interaction going. Let's educate people. Um, I mean, Annika was a great example of someone who, I mean, she works full-time uh, as, a, as a social worker. She has a background in horse riding. And you know, just to hear her story and people just to interact with her, to break that, I call it the God mold. The God mold, right? You meet someone who's at the top of their game and you think it's unachievable, but when you actually talk to them and realize... Well, the steps that they've taken, anyone can actually take those steps. And that's that's really what, what we established Desert Barbell to do, is just to be that um, that pillar in the powerlifting or the strength. We, we, we classify the strength training community um, to be able to pro- provide access to that content, to that level of coaching. Um, so that that's kind of uh, uh, where we stand. And we, we obviously have a few more projects in the pipeline that we're working on, and, and hopefully we'll be in a position in the next month or two to be able to announce them um and and that's that's kind of the direction and that started from a whatsapp group yeah awesome for people so where can people get a hold of you online
0: what's your social media or your website uh,
1: we uh, we have our desert barbell has has its own has its own uh, instagram and the uh, website is just
2: www, uh, Yeah, it's definitely .co not .com uh-huh. and <laughs> um, the desert uh, you can find us on instagram uh, it's just desert.barbel
0: Beautiful. Well, thanks very much for coming into us guys. We look forward to Appreciate it. to uh, seeing what you guys are bringing bringing to the region in the future. Cool. Thanks a lot. Thank, Thank you.
2: Thank you.